I'm actually going to read from the Old Testament as I'm preaching from the New, but the Old Testament reading is from Psalm 22. Hear God's holy word. To the choir master according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls from Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like the water. All my bodies are out of joint. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, and all shall bow who go down to the dust even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord from the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Amen.
May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Of course, Psalm 22 is important because this is how we see Christ in his attitude on the cross. Amen. We will discuss more about this in just a moment. The text of the sermon is much shorter. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 6. 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And he's trying to get them to remember the basics of our faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6. Corinthians comes right after the Gospels in Romans. You'll find 1 Corinthians. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our good and great God in heaven, we come to you as people who need our eyes opened, our ears unstopped, our minds freed from the chains of sin and doubt. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Of first importance, it's the name of the sermon, of first importance. We're going to talk about Jesus, his humiliation, his exaltation, and his vindication. His humiliation, what do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 3. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried. When you think Christ's humiliation, don't just think of Christ on the cross. Think of everything from the womb to the tomb. That's Christ's humiliation. He left heaven above. Perfect unity with the Trinity, perfect love. He left it all. He had a perfect life. There was nothing he needed. Perfectly content in the love of the Trinity. So why did Jesus come? Why was he humiliated? Ephesians 2 tells us, the whole scripture tells us, that man is dead. We're not broken. We're dead. Dead in our sins. Spiritually dead. Totally depraved. Unable to make a move toward God at all. We cannot. Our body, our soul, our mind, will, and emotions, all depraved. No one is righteous. No, not one, Paul says. That's why Jesus came. That's why he had to come. He had to make an atonement for us. He had to bring reconciliation. And we say that it was substitutionary, penal, and an atonement. Substitutionary or vicarious. That means he took our place on the cross. Each one of you should have been there. 
Each one of you should receive wrath from God for your sin and rebellion. It's penal in that it was in our place and it was punishment. It was a penal substitution. He didn't take our place in a garden. He took our place on the cross. He didn't take our place at a, at a grand feast. He took our place under the wrath of God. He received punishment that we deserve. This is called propitiation in the Bible. Romans 3, 21, 1 John. You see the word propitiation used. When you see that word, think wrath. The wrath of God was placed upon him. But it's also an atonement. Because of his work, we are reconciled to God in a way that we could not have been before. We see on the cross a double imputation. What do I mean? A double imputation. That means all of our sin was imputed to Christ and all of his righteousness is imputed to those who would believe. But look at verse 3 also. We see Paul says this twice. That all that he believes is in accordance with the scriptures. So someone tell me, what was Paul's scriptures? What was it? Letters. The, Old the Old Testament. Yeah, he did not have the New Testament. When he writes this, he's talking about everything from Genesis to Malachi. Moses and the prophets. The Psalms. So where do we see that Christ died in our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, with the Old Testament? It's all over. In Genesis 3.15, the first promise of a Savior comes as God pronounces a curse upon the serpent, Satan, after the fall. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the bruising isn't the part you should key on. It's the location of the wound. In this Hebrew uh, phrase, the location of the wound so implies the severity of what's happening. So Satan strikes the seed of the woman on his heel, Jesus. He died. He died on the cross. But what does Christ do? He strikes at the serpent's head. He crushes his head, Paul says in Romans 16. Christ had to come. We also see vision, or we see this in the vision of Zechariah. One of the visions of Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 3 is of Joshua, the high priest of the people. And he's standing before the throne of God, before the angel of the Lord. And that's the Old Testament way of saying before Jesus himself. Joshua, the high priest, is standing before him and he's clothed in filthy garments. And the word implies excrement. He's clothed in excrement. And he's standing in heaven before the holy God. And what does Christ tell him? Remove the filthy garments from him. Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This is the double imputation that Christ accomplished for all who have faith on the cross. He took our iniquity upon himself and he clothed us with pure garments many other places we see this this work of our Lord in the Old Testament in the scriptures in accordance with the scriptures as Paul said Isaiah 53 is one we read that Christ was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus had to come to earth. He had to endure this humiliation of leaving heaven and all of its glory, all of the Trinitarian glory of that unity. He left heaven, left his glory behind and came as a man. He lived a perfect life and then he died. But that's not the end of the story, his humiliation. We also see his exaltation. In verse 4, he says, this is of first importance as well. Not just he was died and he buried. Verse 4 says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So if the humiliation is from womb to tomb, exaltation, think of it as being from grave to glory. Herman Bavink, an old Dutch theologian, said that the resurrection was the Father's Amen. To the sons, it is finished. The grave could not contain our Lord. It's the pivot point of all of history. It's the crux of our faith that he rose again. He was in a grave like one of these. Only not underground. But he was in a grave. A grave where many dead bodies were laying. And the grave could not contain him. You see, Jesus didn't only die for our sins. That's not the end of the story. And this was on the Passover day that he died, on a Friday, but he rose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. And he rose in a real human body. He rose in a glorified human body, a body that breathed, a body that ate, a body that could be touched and felt. He really rose from the dead. I'm, t I'm saying this because many people you will talk to might believe that Jesus was a good man, but they don't believe in the miracles of the Bible, and they definitely don't believe that Jesus really rose. But it's, it's as real as anything in this earth. Jesus rose physically from the dead. There was a time when he was dead, not like you know Wesley on The Princess Bride where he's mostly dead, right? No, not like that. He was all dead. And he rose from the dead. Jaunty Rhodes says the resurrection is the New Testament version of Genesis 1. Christ spoke. God spoke. Christ rose. And there was a new world that came into being. Everything that happened in the fall was beginning to be put right. And it will be ultimately put right and fulfilled when he returns. It was a triune act of sovereign, creative power in the raising of Christ from the dead. But remember, Paul says this is also in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the second time he said this. I think the best way, place we see this is in Luke chapter 24, when two dejected men... He just wants to hear the gospel. Don't worry about him. The bird up there, where is he? Yeah, I know. So, 
two dejected men are walking from Jerusalem to this little town called Emmaus. And they're, they don't know that Jesus has risen. They're sad because they loved him. They're sad and dejected because it seems like everything is unraveled. And Jesus, the resurrected Christ, appears behind them and he hides his identity from them and he begins asking them, why are you so sad? What's wrong? And then he begins to show him that all these things had to happen. It says in verse 26 of Luke 24, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And then it says he began to show them through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms all that was written about himself. He taught them from the Old Testament that everything there pointed to him in some way. Big ways or small ways, but it was about himself. He showed them all that was written, and he showed his apostles the same thing. That he rose from the dead. And this, of course, is our hope. We all someday will be buried, just like everyone out here is buried. We all will be there. It's one of the certainties of life. We are all going to die. And yet Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection. That means that he's the first, but we're all going to rise with him as well. Some will rise to glory, some will rise to punishment, but we are all going to rise. And this is all in accordance with the scripture. So his humiliation from womb to tomb, his exaltation from grave to glory. But we also see that Everything he said is validated. It's validated among men. And this is in verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Cephas is Peter. And then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. We have about 50 here, so imagine this times 10. 500 brothers. And who knows how many sisters and their families. 500 brothers at one time. So over 500 men saw the risen Lord. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you don't believe me, find one of these 500 brothers and ask them what they saw. If you think this is just some argument without evidence, go ask these men. People sometimes say they can't believe in Jesus because of the supernatural. It's all just so... It's so it doesn't make sense in our physical universe. That there would be these miracles. He was born of a virgin, really. And he rose from the dead. He was dead, but then alive again. Is that what you really believe? You know, we do believe that because the Bible says it, but not just because the Bible says it, because there was so much evidence at the time. These 12 disciples, these 12 apostles, and all those who followed their teaching, the teachings of Jesus, they changed the entire world. It went from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Christianity is the largest of all religions in the whole world. But each one of them, each one of the twelve, except for maybe John, died in a, a martyr's death. And many of the disciples and thousands and thousands of Christians since then have died a martyr's death. But those who saw Jesus, they believed that he was real. They believed that he had risen. In the Air Force, they trained us to receive torture. How do you receive torture and not break? Well, one of the things they told you was, always tell the truth. Don't start lying, because when you're under torture, you will eventually tell the truth. 
Everyone has a point where they're going to break. So just tell the truth. You don't have to tell the whole truth, but what you say, make it true so that you always come back to the truth. So did all these men die for a lie? Did they, did they think or know that Jesus really didn't rise, but they wanted this whole thing to keep going for their own reasons? They just lied about it. And then when it was time to be martyred, they said, yeah, we're just going to die for this lie. When they were tortured, they were, they were just like, yeah, we'll, we'll die. We'll die in this lie. That's not how the human body works, and that's not how the human mind works. They died because they believed that it was absolutely true. That Jesus came, he died and was buried in accordance with the Scriptures, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And now 500 people, Paul says, 500 men have seen this. Now go talk to them if you don't believe me. So there's plenty of evidence. But the reason people don't believe then is the same reason people don't believe now. They love their sin. They love themselves. And in their hearts they say, I will not bow my knee to that man. I will not. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They knew that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. The soldiers came and told them, remember? The soldiers saw the, the explosion from the tomb. They heard the earthquake. They saw the angel roll the stone away and sit on it. Not so Jesus could get out, but just so that people could go in and see. The soldiers saw this, and they went and told the teachers of the law. They told the Pharisees. And of course, the Pharisees immediately changed and believed, didn't they? Because now they had evidence. No, they did not. The amount of evidence is not the issue. They had plenty of evidence. They would not bow the knee to that man, Jesus Christ. And if you doubt the gospel today, it's for the same reason. It's not that you lack evidence. Jesus Christ was on the cross and he endured an eternity of hell. So to disregard that to serve something other than Jesus is to embrace that eternity of hell for yourself. So let me conclude with verse 1. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. The gospel, Paul said. The good news. He says that it's been received by you and you stand in it and you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached. Unless you believed in vain. Well, what does it mean to believe in vain? He says in verse 14, some didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. They believed the wrong gospel. And it's the same today. People believe the wrong gospel. They may believe it with all their hearts, but if it's not the right Jesus, if it's not the right gospel, you're not saved. You must believe. Paul is saying you must believe the propositional truths of our faith. That Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. Think of the Apostles' Creed that kind of summarizes the essentials of our faith. These are the things that you must believe. Or you believed in vain, he says. But more than believe, you must love the Savior. It's part of your repentance, is turning to Him in love. It's His kindness, His love that brings us to repentance and a love for Him as well. But what is the Gospel? Well, you can summarize the gospel. I mean, people get tongue-tied sometimes when you ask them, well, tell me what you think about the gospel. What is the gospel? It's like when you were little and your dad or your mom were doing kind of a Bible time with you, 
What were the three answers that were always right? God, Jesus, love, maybe the Bible. Like those are almost always right. Kids, I'm giving you some inside baseball. Your parents are talking to you about God. One of those four is probably going get, to get, get a home run. But the gospel is Jesus. Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his word, his works. That's the gospel. Jesus. And without Jesus, we are all hopelessly lost in sin. There's no way to come to him. Apart from the saving work of the Holy Spirit, the saving work of Christ, the saving work of the Father, you cannot even believe. Here's a sermon that Paul preached to the people of Athens from Acts 17. He said, God has mercifully delayed your judgment. In other words, you're still alive. You're all still here, and he hasn't returned yet. He's mercifully delayed your judgment, because what do we all deserve? We all deserve to die right now, hell, right now. God mercifully delayed Adam and Eve's judgment too, didn't he? Like R.C. Dr. Sproul says, Genesis 1 and 2 should have ended in Genesis 3. When God destroys Adam and Eve and all of creation because of the rebellion. But that's not what he did. He has mercifully delayed your judgment. And then Paul says that God, who gives life to all mankind and breath and everything, has overlooked the time of ignorance in your life. In other words, God is your creator. You owe him your allegiance, but maybe you didn't know that, but now you do. He's overlooked your ignorance. And now he commands people everywhere to repent. You think of how some people preach the gospel today. It's not the gospel, but they'll say things like, well, Jesus just loves you so much, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not the gospel. You never heard Paul or the apostles preaching like this. What does Paul say? You have a creator. He's been very merciful up to this point. But now he commands you to repent. Because he has fixed, and not just you, he commands people everywhere to repent, Paul said. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He will return. How did he do that? By a man whom he has appointed. That's Jesus. And how do we know this is true? He says he has given us this assurance of, of all of it by raising him from the dead. Jesus, the good news is this. Jesus came and he died for sinners just like you and just like me. And he rose again. So I extend to you this morning a free and open offer of salvation. Repent of your sin. Believe on Jesus Christ. Place your trust and your faith in Christ alone. He is your only hope. And he has been merciful to this day. He's been merciful. You're still here. You're listening to the gospel. But you don't know how long this offer will last. Because if you continue to reject it, he will allow, allow your heart to be hardened. And you eventually will not even want to hear it. You don't know the day of your death. So today is the day. Today is the day of God's favor. Today is the day. Turn to him now. And if you already know him, rejoice in that the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart. Produced in you faith and repentance. And we all should remember... 
as of first importance that Christ died and was buried in accordance with the scriptures and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures for our justification. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as your sheep or those who would be your sheep someday. We come to those who desire to honor you, to remember your death and all that it entailed, the wrath that you took in our place, and to remember your resurrection on this beautiful morning. Oh, how we long to be there. We would have loved to seen your face the day that you rose from the dead. Like Mary and Martha, to grab a hold of your feet and to worship you. And yet someday we will, and we pray that you would hasten that day. And that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name.